Before we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to to spend just a moment in looking at God's Word and look in particular at the passage that Pastor Dave read a few moments ago from Luke's Gospel. And so if you have your Bible or the one in the pew rack, it might be helpful to open up your copy of the Scriptures and turn once again to Luke 10 and focus your attention on this very familiar passage of Scripture, one of the parables of Jesus as he talks about this man moved with compassion who reached out. We know him as the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It was just uh, after 3 a.m. when a young woman pulled her red Fiat into the parking space near her apartment. She got out of her car, locked it, and began to walk down the sidewalk toward the front door of her apartment. But she never made it, because lurking in the shadows there was uh, a man, uh, a burglar. She spotted the man standing in her path. She veered away, headed for a police call box, but she never made it, because the man reached out, grabbed her, stabbed her. Her frantic screams for help pierced the dark night. Lights began to go on as neighbors began to hear her cry for help. As she cried out, will somebody please help me? He's stabbing me. He's stabbing me. Just then a man shouted from one of the nearby apartment windows. As the man addressed the assailant, he said, let that woman go. And the assailant walked away and the woman began staggering toward her apartment house. She never made it, though, because the assailant once again attacked her and returned to finish his grisly work. She cried out again and again, I'm dying, I'm dying, will someone please help me? The attacker got in his car, drove off, but then soon returned. And he found the woman sprawled in front of the apartment building, just a few doors from where she lived. And this time the assailant finished his work and he killed her. Eventually, someone did call the police, who arrived moments later to find the body of a 28-year-old woman. Her name was Kitty Genovese. Detectives who investigated that particular crime discovered that 38 different people had witnessed the crime, yet no one came to her aid, and no one called the police until she was dead. It turned out that the man who did finally phone the police was a neighbor of Kitty's, and he had only decided to call the police after first talking with a friend to find out what his friend thought he should do. It seems to me that we look at a situation like that and we ask ourselves, why did he wait? Why did he not get involved? Why did the 38 people who witnessed the crime choose not to involve themselves? This brutal murder took place in 1964. Some of us weren't even born yet. Some of us were young. You may remember it. You may not. However, psychologists and sociologists have coined a term based on this brutal murder. They call it the Kitty Genovese Syndrome, and it describes how eyewitnesses 
to a tragedy will choose to not get involved or to offer aid. I didn't want to get involved. Seems to speak a truth that none of us really wants to face, but with which most of us grapple. The fact is that most of us have given the opportunity would be like those 38 neighbors. In fact, I wonder. 38 people had a chance to save her. No one dared or cared enough to get involved. If we had been there, would we have been number 39? While you're thinking about your answer to that question, it relates to the story that Jesus told, this familiar parable about the Good Samaritan. When a lawyer came to talk to Jesus and questioned him with a trick question. And here's a conversation between Jesus and this lawyer that didn't turn out the way the man expected it to. Dr. Luke records it for us, and he says on one occasion, an expert in the law. Some translations say he was a lawyer. That this expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, and he said, Teacher, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It seems to me that this is the ultimate question of the human heart. And all religions of the world offer some kind of an answer to that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What will Jesus say to this important question? To the lawyer's chagrin, though, Jesus doesn't answer outrightly the lawyer's question, but answers his question with a question. And he says to the man, you know the Bible backwards and forwards. You tell me what the Scriptures say. And the lawyer says that if you want to go to heaven, the law says that you've got to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And while you're at it, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that was not only the right answer... It was actually a quotation of two Old Testament passages out of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. You would expect this expert in the Old Testament law to know that, that in order to inherit eternal life, the kingdom of God, you must love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, in hearing the man read it back, says you've answered rightly. You're, you're good at what you do. You've got the knowledge. Indeed, you understand what is needed. But then Jesus threw him a curveball. And he said to the man, do this. Not believe this, but he said, do this and you will live. Was Jesus teaching salvation by works? Absolutely not. He was merely pointing out that if you could truly love God and love others perfectly, you would have eternal life. God demands perfection. That means that we are to love God always, every second of every day, with all of our heart, all of our soul, strength and mind. 
never deviating uh, from that, from the moment we're born until we draw our final breath. And that means that not only do we love God, but that we need to love others perfectly all the time. That's God's standard. It's perfection or nothing. And Jesus is really telling the man, you want to go, ahead, go to heaven? Great. Be perfect. And you'll make it. But we know, of course, that no one can do that. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all flawed. We're, we're all weak. We are frail. And I want to remind us all, myself and you, that God doesn't grade on a curve. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the gift of God's grace in Jesus. Aren't you glad today that the only one, the perfect Lamb of God, paid the price once and for all, fully? It is finished. He paid the price. He became our substitute. We'll celebrate it in a few moments as we take the bread and the cup in our hands and remember that while we were not perfect and we could not earn our own salvation, there was once a man, the God-man, who did praise His name. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, when you receive this good news and you, by faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive the holiness of God and you are declared righteous and without sin. Now the lawyer in hearing Jesus is about to sweat bullets. I'm sure he regrets having even asked Jesus the question. It's kind of like raising your hand in class and then having the professor call on you and make you look like a fool. Jesus has turned this expert in the law into a pretzel. And he's done it in only 21 words. Verse 29 says that the lawyer was looking for a loophole. He wanted to justify his behavior. That means that Jesus had painted him into a corner and now the young lawyer wants out. The young lawyer knew he loved God. But what about loving his neighbor? So in order to get out of this painted-in corner, he asks a further question, and he says, Rabbi, teacher, who is my neighbor? I don't think he's really sincere in his question. It's kind of like asking what the definition of is is. In truth, the young lawyer already knew the answer to this question, who is my neighbor? Because he read it this way. To love my neighbor is to love people who are like me. To love my Jewish neighbors as myself. You see, his definition of neighbor excluded people who weren't like him. It excluded people who were Samaritans and Gentiles and pagans. This man had decided in his heart that he would love God and he would love his neighbors as long as his neighbor was like him. He would be a neighbor to other Jews, but to no one else. And so he wants a definition from Jesus so he'll know who he has to help and who he can 
ignore with Jesus' permission. He wants Jesus to draw a circle and he'll gladly love everyone inside the circle, but he'll refuse to love those outside of the circle. So Jesus draws the circle, but Jesus draws the circle much larger than the man expects. The lawyer wanted a loophole, a legal limit on who he had to love. And Jesus is about to explode his loophole and blow his mind at the same time. And Jesus doesn't directly answer the man's question, who is my neighbor? He doesn't uh, explore the Greek and what the word neighbor means in, in the Old Testament. He doesn't offer a dissertation on its derivation from ancient languages. Jesus, like he so often does, he just simply tells a story. And his story is familiar to us. It's a little masterpiece we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus says this certain man traveling alone fell victim to the attack of some highway robbers. Evidently, these highway robbers waited until this man traveling down from Jerusalem down to Jericho jumped him, beat him, stripped him, robbed him, and left him for dead. And then Jesus goes on in his story that while this man was bleeding, bleeding by the side of the road, eventually a priest came by. A priest who was on his way home from Jerusalem to his home in Jericho. This priest, this, this preacher man, had been up to the temple in Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem uh, leading the people in worship. And this priest comes along and sees this man in his dire circumstances. And instead of reaching out to the man in love and compassion, Jesus in his story says that the priest deliberately passed by on the other side of the road. He would not even come close to the beaten man. He, he didn't want to look upon it. The sight was too revolting to him. And so the priest, the man of God, went on his journey without ever offering any help. And then Jesus goes on and says that there was a second man that came by. This man was not a priest. He was a lay preacher. He was a Levite. He was on the worship team in the temple. He led people in singing praise to God. The text, the scriptures suggest that this Levite was both better and worse than the priest. He was better in that when he saw the poor man lying by the side of the road, beaten half to death, he went over to have a closer look. That was the better part. Perhaps there was nothing he could do about it. Perhaps he was not trained in uh, medical arts. So he went to the other side of the road and continued on his way. That was the worst part. I pause here to comment for a moment that priests and Levites in the first century were highly respected men. Because of their education and their training, their knowledge of the law of God, they were able to teach people. They were set up as examples. They were the true religious leaders of their day. And yet Jesus in his story says both of these highly respected men chose to pass by and do absolutely nothing. We don't know 
what their reason was for not doing anything. I suppose if we had the opportunity to ask them, uh, they, they might suggest that they were too busy to stop or that they were late for an appointment or they didn't know the man uh, who was laying by the roadside or that they weren't a doctor or that they thought he was probably already dead and there was nothing that they could do or that they had been serving God for a long time and they were tired and they needed to get home. It could be that their family was expecting them, their wife was expecting them home and they didn't want to be late for dinner. Or that they were wearing their temple clothes and they didn't want to get them dirty. Or they were too busy worshiping God. Or when I get to Jericho, I'll call 911 and have them send help. We don't know the reasons why. But what we do know is that these two godly men, a priest and a Levite, chose to do absolutely nothing. The irony of the story, of course, is that if you would ask them, do you love God? These two religious men would have said, of course I love God. I love him with all of my heart and soul and strength. And on a certain level, that would be true. They were men who spent their days worshiping God and leading others to worship God. And it seems to me that it's against that backdrop that their failure in this occasion seems to be the greatest. They both come from being in God's presence. They were worshiping God in high praise. And yet when they went out, God's presence never got through to them so that they could share God's presence with others. But Jesus doesn't end his illustration there with these two godly men. He introduces yet a third man, and this man turns out to be the hero of the story. He's a Samaritan. Now, to our modern ear, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but what you need to understand is that from a historical view in the first century, Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated one another. The Jews thought that Samaritans were racial and religious half-breed heretics. The Samaritans thought that Jews were arrogant know-it-alls. And the two groups didn't associate. They didn't like each other, would be putting it mildly. If the poor man by the side of the road had been a Samaritan, the priest and the Levite probably would have said, he got what he deserved, let him suffer. It's also fair, I think, to comment that the Samaritan... This third man has no more reason to stop than the priest or the Levite did. He was probably on his way home too. His wife was probably waiting supper for him too. I'm sure he was busy and tired and eager to see his family. All the excuses the other two might have made, he could have made as well. But he didn't. The Bible says that this third man, when he saw the man beaten and bleeding by the roadside, that he took pity on the man. The word pity is not strong enough, because if you look at the original language, it's a very strong word that actually means to be moved in your bowels, in the deepest part of you, in your gut. It's like a kick in the gut, that this man was kicked in the gut. When he saw this man suffering by the roadside, and it says that the Samaritan, this ne'er-do-well in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritan had compassion on the man by the road. He took pity on him. 
He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine, a a first century form of offering first aid. He put the man on his donkey while he walked beside him. Uh, He took him to an inn and paid for his room. He got up the next morning and he told the innkeeper that if there are extra expenses involved in this, that I'll come back and I'll take care of any extra expenses. We can summarize what the Samaritan did this way, that his, his help to this bleeding man was prompt, it was thorough, it was generous, it was wise, it was self-denying, it was at his own discomfort, and it was at his own expense. And in this Samaritan, we see one who is not only attentive, but one who is compassionate, offers the willing hand, the willing foot, and the open purse. And here's the kicker. The two men who should have known and shown compassion didn't. And the one who wouldn't have been expected to show compassion, a Samaritan, did. The religious people did nothing about it. The Samaritan was an outcast, but he knew the truth and his compassion moved him to actions. There are probably 20 different sermons that could be preached on 20 different issues raised by Jesus' parable. But I want to just address one crucial thing this morning. Jesus tells a story that changes the the man's question from who is my neighbor to what kind of person am I? The focus shifts. The question is no longer about the kind of man who's dying, but the question is now focused on the kind of people who are walking by. The first two felt no compassion. The Samaritan was a different kind of person. So when you get to the end of Jesus' story, what's the question that Jesus asks in verse 36? He says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer, the expert in the law in verse 37 says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus gives him a punch in the gut and he says, oh, you expert in the law, you go and you do. Likewise, This word is a word to me, and it's a word to us in the church. It seems to me that every week that goes by, that you and I are confronted by neighbors who are in need. People who are hurting and broken. In light of Jesus' story, we must answer the question, who is my neighbor and what kind of person am I? As a follower of Jesus, Ezekiel says that the Lord has given us a new heart and a new spirit, that our heart of stone has been removed from us and we've been given a heart of flesh. That means that our heart should should be beating with the needs that are around us. 
Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is young and old. My neighbor is female and male. My neighbor is rich and poor. My neighbor is black and white and Asian and Hispanic. My neighbor is a child. My neighbor is a beggar on the street asking for a handout or uh, with a cardboard saying, I need help, or a cancer victim or an AIDS patient or an out-of-work engineer or a single parent or a lonely widow or a person rotting in a nursing home or a new arrival from another country who doesn't speak our language. Language. These people are our neighbors. And we can sit here cloistered in our little church community and we can talk a good game about how wonderful it is to have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts and go out and be heartless when it comes to the people who are around us who are in need. Oh, that God would give us a spiritual sensitivity, an antenna that becomes sensitive and aware of the people around us who are broken and who need hope and help and healing. You see, it seems to me, and I include myself, I'm not pounding you on the head without pounding myself. It seems to me that we Christians talk the talk, but we fail to walk the walk. May God have mercy on us. What will you do when you see your neighbor in need? Will you walk by? Will you start with the need that is near you and ask God to give you grace and help to meet that need? Your religion is absolutely empty. Your words have no meaning if it does not compel you. If the love of God that's been shed in your heart does not compel you to reach out to those who are hurting along life's highway. This week, God will put in our paths men and women who are dying, people who have need. The world has truckloads of priests and Levites. What we need in this world today are people who will be kicked in the gut and move to action and be good Samaritans. Sooner or later, we're bound to meet someone in need. Do not ask, who is that man and how did he get there? Do not ask, is this person a friend of mine or is he an enemy? Do not ask, do I know this person? Does he have the same, same skin color? Does he have my religion? Is he of my family? Is he of my tribe, my background, my language, my people? Jesus teaches that if he or she has need and you can help him or her, he is your neighbor. It's time for Christians to get beyond the fortress of these walls and to reach out with the compassion of Jesus to those who are in need. I had a conversation just after the first service of someone who was troubled by my message today. He said, Rick, it seems to me that 
here in this middle-class church in Mill Creek. We're willing to throw money at problems. But most of us are reluctant to roll up our sleeves and get involved. And I think he's, my brother is probably right. I find those words convicting. And frankly, I wonder, as a leader of this fellowship of believers, how have we done in loving our neighbor as ourselves? Again, I'm convicted by Dave Butt's words last week that a lot of Christians are hearers of the word, but they fail to be doers of the word. It's time for us as a Christian community to go out there and do something about it. Get involved. Offer yourself to one of the organizations in our community. Go down and reach out in love to someone that you know has need. Go and spend time with some lonely person who's sitting in a nursing home. Involve yourself in one of the ministries that's reaching out to our community. And let them see the compassion of Jesus working in and through you to this needy community. And let them know that because God has loved us, that we reach out in love to them. Jesus said it best. Go and do likewise. May God help us as we endeavor with his help to do so. Let us pray. It's easy, Lord, for us in this waspish church to be insulated from the needs of this world. Break our hearts, Lord, with the needs of those who are around us Forgive us when we allow our religiosity and our pride and our busyness to keep us from getting involved, getting messy in the world's needs. Lord, when we were along the highway, bleeding and dying, you sent your son Jesus, who bound us up and poured on a balm of healing on our life, helped our sin-sick soul, and paid the price in full that we might be whole. And as your followers, you call us to do the same for others. We want to love you, Lord, with all of our heart, soul, and strength. We want to be able to love our neighbor as ourselves. Empower us by your Spirit to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name.